Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello. Welcome to the New Books in Jewish Studies podcast. I am your host, Ari Barbalat. Today, it is my humble honor to be in dialogue with Omar Boom, the author of the new book, Undesirables, A Holocaust Journey to North Africa, published in Stanford by Stanford University Press 2023. Omar is professor of anthropology, history, and Near Eastern languages and cultures at UCLA, and also the Maurice Amato Chair in Sephardic Studies at UCLA. Omar, it's an honor to be in dialogue with you today. Thank you, Ari. The pleasure is mine. To begin, I'd be curious to ask you about your memories of Najib Berber, your collaborator in this project. Can we devote some time to remembering him together? Uh, Thank you, Ari, for First of all, for the opportunity to talk about this book, this collaborated project, or this pro- this project of collaboration that I did with my late and former brother and friend, Najib Berber. Let me say, I want to say something about Najib, first of all, as a human being, and then as an artist. Najib and I have worked together on this project for about six six years, but beyond the work of collaboration we had, we are really family. We were we were we we were family. We're still family, even in his absence from this world. I think still believe that he's with me all the time. Najib is was a neighbor here at Westwood, Los Angeles. He was like a second father to my daughter. My daughter learned how to draw from him um, since she was four or five years. He was always there um, joking with her. Najib was somebody who would always love kids. He, he loved being around kids. It was It's a gift. It's a gift to have somebody who can joke with kids and play with kids in this world. And But Najib was, uh, he was born in, in Algeria in the 50s, in 1952. Um, grew up in Paris, in France, before he moved to the United States in the nineteen eight in the nineteen nineties. So you can see from here that he's already somebody who's a cosmopolitan. He has a he has a knowledge of different worlds. Uh, he knew North Africa, North African history, North African culture as an Algerian, who also had an understanding of Moroccan society, Tunisian society. Libyan society and 
So given the, his work, he worked with artists in Morocco. He worked with artists and cartoonists in Tunisia as part of a one of the early histories of bon dessiné and and graphic novels and graphic histories in both countries. In France, he collaborated and he was also part of a circle of Algerian bon dessiné and cartoonists who fled in the 1990s. And um, but also he maintained strong relationship with artists in Algeria. And in the United States, coming to the United States, even though he did some work and he was not as active as in different circles, but he did a lot of artistic work for different projects in different parts of the United States. So working with Najib on this project is really a gift in the uh, in the sense that when I thought when we when I proposed to Najib working on the camps, on Vichy camps in North Africa. And telling the story of Jews and Spanish Republicans and other undesirables who were um, um, who were who were mistreated by the Vichy government, and and many of them ended up in in uh, labor and detention and disciplinary camp throughout North Africa. Najib was agreed right away, and I was lucky to work with him for different reasons. Many of them has to do with what I already said. This is some. This is an artist who began as an amateur in the 1980s, but he was involved in the foundation in the sec, what we call the second generation of Algerian cartoonists, Algerian artists. So he's he has the knowledge of what it takes to write and to produce a comic history from a North African perspective. He has the historical knowledge that I don't I don't need to train or teach to another artist from outside of the region. He was also very familiar with um, Holocaust history, Jewish history, given the fact that he was his 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 wife was the was the daughter and granddaughter of two of Holocaust survivors. And he knew French society, French history very well. So I didn't have to do that background training for an artist once we sit, when we sat down, we talked about the script and the, uh, we talked about the, the script of the book. We talked about the history of how we want to do it. I, I was working with an artist who was very informed with this history. And for that, I was really blessed. I was very fortunate to have somebody like Najib as a collaborator, as a friend, as a member of my family, and as a brother. And I was very fortunate to produce the work that we did together. And I really hope that students in universities, members of the general public would appreciate his art, his really unbelievable art. Thank you. How have you been impacted by his passing? Are you okay since he passed? Do you mind if I ask how you have been feeling since his passing? I, I think it depends. Sometimes it's you miss you miss having coffee with him in my at home we we've always one of the things that we talked about our homes we talked about morocco we talked about algeria we talked about um our connected histories um around cup of coffees every sometimes twice a week sometimes three times a week every weekend we go for a walk so i i, I miss that but when i wanted to get um, a 
disconnected from university daily life or I always turn around to Najib and I, I miss that. Um, I miss, I think even my daughter too misses him. Yesterday I was talking to my daughter actually and then she said, yeah, I'm, I miss Najib. And uh, so it's, it comes and goes and, but what I, but I'm, I am lucky because I get to hold to his really uh, funny um, words. Sometimes I remember, I just want to say this joke, for instance, the other day when he was just four weeks before he died, we were talking and he said he loved it. He loved what Stanford University did with the book. And he came and he said, well, now that uh, the glory is here, I am fucking dying. So, and he said it in a, in a, in in a what what I've always what his wife and I would always say, and his son would always say, "This is the Najib's humor." And it's, so it's it's somebody who's who's got a real a real understanding of the world, I think. And he was also in many ways a man of justice, but also a man of who, despite all of these things. He loved Paris, I think, that I have always to, I'm, I'm obliged to say that all the time because everything he he says, you can have a conversation with him and then it says, oh, I miss Paris. And so, so he, and he liked art in, 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 in many ways. I think that that's probably why he's always reminded, even living in the US, whether he, when he used in Massachusetts or in California, I think France probably meant to him art, meant to him uh, beautiful buildings, beautiful architecture, um, uh, a world of uh, music, a world of art, and so on and so forth. So so I think it's, I, I so I miss, I miss, I miss making fun of him when he talks about Paris, because I don't have that same connection that he had with Paris. But we also talked about being from the same region, thinking about our, as I said, our these connected histories that are linked because of where we come from, but also because of our relationship to the colonial power that have to be that happens to be France. Thank you for sharing this. May his memory be for a blessing. Yeah, thank you. In light of what you were sharing about Najib, can you comment on the history of comic books and graphic novels in North African literary history? Were there any works in French or in Arabic that inspired you in preparing this? Are there any others that deal with the Holocaust or World War II period other than yours? That's a great question. So if you when you think about graphic and comic art or what what we call it in North Africa and in France, la bon, bon dessiné, I would say that Algeria to some extent was at the um, forefront of this tradition, even though there are moments in North in Moroccan history in the 60s and 70s where you have a few examples of cartoon um, sections in newspapers or even publications that were reserved just for um, cartoons and comics and what they call comic strips. I would say the Algerian model uh, that began with Maqdidish, which is a publication that started in 1969 and it was mostly a reaction to a colonial history a french tradition of bond dessinée it comes from that but it tries to decolonize in some way historical knowledge about french in the in the 
in the aftermath or in the 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 days of independence or post-independence period. So you have that. So in a sense that you then you have you look at when you look at the the key figures in this tradition was the the slim the the most one of the most important um, artists and comic um, uh, artists in 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 Algerian in Algerian uh, uh, tradition. Then in the 1980s you start seeing a an emergence of a different a different um, uh, school that uh, connected in some way to Tunisia with with the publication of Qaws wa Quzah. Uh, which Najib was part of, also, but also Najib was played also a role in uh, the establishment of uh, festivals of bon dessiné in Tunis, in Algeria, and later on in Morocco. Okay, and um, so that's so this connection between Algeria, Tunisia, and Morocco at some point, I think Najib was part of all of these. This we cannot also forget the fact that there were also. Um, models of bon dessiné in the context of Lebanon and in the context of um, uh, Iraq, in the context of Syria, and in the context of Egypt, and even in the context of the uh, 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 Palestine. So you have you have a you have a, a, a the example of uh, um, uh, um, Handala, for instance, the figure of Handala that um, that uh, was part of this whole history of Palestinian um, uh, cartoons um, um, and and then and then if you if you fast forward to the 1990s you have a pause in the Algerian society because of the the civil war okay and uh, and you 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 will wait until the early 1990 early uh, 2000 where you see a shift from somehow from this presence of a strong tradition of bon dessiné in Algeria and Tunisia to Morocco, especially with the establishment of a school of bon dessiné in in Tetouan. That's in in some way that's the history. If you look at the example of how bon dessiné or comics discuss the World War II and the Holocaust, we really don't have a lot. We have a few examples like. Uh, um, uh, and a publication of a bon dessiné called uh, Le Carton Jaune, um, which was a, it's an iter it's a, it's an example of bon dessiné that talks about the soccer player, but actually it is, it is more, it's a, it's a story that, of a that tries to take the, the the story of a guest the. Uh, Perez, uh, uh, the the Jewish boxer from Tunisia, who was interned in Auschwitz. There is also a bon dessiné for a uh, kids that talks about the Grand Mosque of Paris. And outside of these two, you see references in bon dessiné about the war to some moments in history of World War II, like the story of Mohammed the uh, Sultan Sidi Mohammed bin Yusuf. In some bon dessinés, two bon dessinés in Morocco, you see bon dessinés that talks about Senegalese tirailleurs or uh, Moroccan tirailleurs in the World War II, and uh, there's actually published recently called Le Tirailleur, but it 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 references elements or sections in in phases historical phases in World during World War II. That's all you get. If you go back to the 1940s, you have 
examples of bande dessinée that was drawn during the war, but mostly in the context of France, in the context of camps like Gours and Le Vernet in France. So what we're trying to do in this book is really to find a way to use this connection between the, the southern part of the Mediterranean and the northern part of the Mediterranean in, uh, in so far as the movement of people fleeing the Nazi rise to North Africa to escape from Casablanca or Lisbon to the Americas to talk about this story and to do it visually through the comics. That's where we come in. That's where Najib and I come in to this tradition of comics to take it outside of these histories and sometimes stories that are local to talk about this trans-regional Mediterranean history, which we call, which we happen to call Mediterranean Bond Dessinée. And the story of the Holocaust and North Africa, or the story of World War II and the movement on the circulation of people, refugees and migrants from Europe to North Africa, we think is an essential part of telling this story of Mediterranean bond dessinés through, through a, an example of the Mediterranean bond dessinés that we call the undesirables. At the very end of this book, graphic images of you and Najib are presented. In what ways, if at all, are you and Najib personally hidden characters, so to speak, in the text and story? In what ways are you as narrator, illustrator, and graphic designer, quote unquote, hidden participants in any way in the narrative in regard to what you reveal and conceal, bequeath and withhold to and from the reader? Wow. That's a that's an interesting question. In 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 many ways, I, I think we are we're authors, but we're authors and artists of the book, of this story guided by the archives. And this is where we come up with this term called, they come up with this term called retroactive writing or a retroactive rendering of the story of refugees guided by the archives. Let me explain that. So I come to this as a historical anthropologist in a sense that I am interested in the vignettes and the stories of people and out of that, I'm trying to tell a story that can reflect in some way a general issue or that was happening during the time. So we can't write, because we don't have ethnographies of during that moment, I think there is a possibility, I see it as a, from an anthropological perspective, you can actually go back to the archive, look at how people talked about their stories, about their sufferings, about their struggles, about their movement from France to Tangier or France to uh, Algiers and from Algiers, how they were, um, whether they escaped to the Americas or they were held, held as captives and been sent to the camps. And the archives, these are archives held in the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum, archives held at Yad Vashem, archives held in the Moroccan uh, National Archives or Les Archives du Maroc, and so on and so forth. Local, family, um, national archives. So Najib and I, first of the, the, one of the things that we did, we have to, first of all, look at what stories 
can be used to tell this story of circulation and imprisonment during the war. And we thought that we can tell it visually. So that's where we are in some way, writers and artists and narrators of this story. So it's a choice. We, we're making a choice about which stories fit what we are trying to tell. Because it's, and what we're trying to tell is a story of circulation displacement in a colonial context. And we think that there's so many stories there that are that the archives is full of, and we have we're making a choice which ones are best tell this. So there is a a selection. In if I can answer your question, yes, we are selecting the best stories that tell this, and we're selecting the best stories without marginalizing other stories that we see as marginal. So that's where we get into. That's where we think that it's it's a it's a story. The story of Hans is also a story of many, many, many other, other migrants, many, many other refugees, okay? And, 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 and we, we made the choice, even though we started this at the beginning, we made, at the beginning, we made the choice of starting with me as the narrator. I am sitting in the, in the, in the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum's library, research library, the Mandel Center. And then I discovered this manuscript of Hans, and then I try to tell the story and then, but we thought there are going to be too many layers. So what we did, we took out my presence in the book and then we centered only on Hans. We let Hans tell his story by himself and by allowing Hans to tell his story by himself, we are giving Hans and other refugees the, an agency to tell us how they move from one part of the world from Germany to France to Spain to Morocco to Algeria then to Mexico or whatever they are happen to be whatever they where, where, and or whatever they ended up after the war so so I, I think to summarize what your your question is that yes there's so many choices of selection of I would say of censorship what we have to censor also certain things that we thought that they're not relevant to the story we're telling, and we had to end it in at a moment of the the Allies landing, because we thought that even though the camps, many of the camps were not closed after Operation Torch of November 1942, we still think that most of the people who were interned in the camps were at a moment of liberty as the landing took place in Casablanca and Algeria and and Morocco. What genre would you say best categorizes this book? Is it historical fiction? Is it a graphic novel? Is it oral history? Is it a comic book? Is it a memoir? Is it a cartoon? How does this book exemplify or defy such categories? This is for, for us, this is a graphic novel. It's a graphic novel because it starts one point and ends. We could make it a comic book in sense a series, but we didn't have the time because Najib was basically had to make the choice because of his cancer, of the development of his cancer. So uh, th this is a choice. I hope that so one day I could find the right artist to write the second phase of Han's story. But we decided to end in the war because Najib was not doing well health-wise. So, and that basically conditioned what kind of genre we are talking about here, which is 
they're talking about a graphic a graphic novel but but in within the graphic novel there are elements you can the of of um, comics history there are elements in the way things are rendered because we're talking about different layers of how this was done so it's a combination of text it's a combination of dialogue and it's a combination of manuscripts and actually original documents so you can when you look at the when you read it this is really a unique document because we want to give it a historical um, um uh, relevance this is something that emerges from the archive and in some sense there is some reality there some realism there in the way we even in the way that the historical figures are depicted we talk about that too in uh, we made sure that we give them some realism because we want to tell the readers that this is a true story and every segment every element every story every line that you read in the graphic novel is something that's coming from a document a historical document can you tell us about Kadur Ben-Habri? Ben-Habri, ben yeah. So, the so, rector so of the Grand Mosque of Paris. What role does he play in the story? What was his historical significance? So, so that's one element. So, for instance, in in the book, in the in the uh, in the in the in the in the archives, we found a re a, re a reference to Sidi Kadur Ben-Habri. Um, who was the rector of the Grand Mosque of Paris, which is the one of the most important institutions in uh, that was that was inaugurated by uh, the father, the grandfather, um, sorry, uh, the the father of uh, Sultan Sidi Mohammed bin Yusuf, Mullah Yusuf, and it was inaugurated in 1926, and it it came to represent what we call French Islam in in the metropole. So why we included it? We included it because we found a reference, one line reference in do a document that talks about Hans' relationship to the Lika and how the Lika was trying to organize and collaborate with Ben Gabrit in order to fight not only anti-Semitism in the metropole and in the colonies, but also Islamophobia among the settlers. In, in 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 the colonies so we we thought about when we when we think about the script i what i decided i decided to make sure that the story of ben gabrit would fit in the arch narrative of the movement of hans from germany from berlin to paris especially at a moment where we also found another document that talks about the visit of Sultan Sidi Mohammed bin Yusuf in 1933 at the moment that Hitler was coming to power. So all of these things that here you have Ben Gabrit, who represents the one of the advisors of Sultan Sidi Mohammed bin Yusuf in 1933 or before, even before that, coming to meeting the Sultan in the mosque in 1933. And at the same time, you have Hans and uh, Nassim Ben Nassim, the Algerian Jew, were already talking about what can be done as far as Jewish-Muslim relations in Bode. And then you have the Sultan and Ben Gabrit in the, inside the mosque talking about ethnic relations in Morocco and the larger 
North African world at the moment where the 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 French institute tried to institute in 1930 what's called as the Berber decree or the Dahir al-Barbari which was trying to separate Arabs and and, and Arabs and Arabs and Amazigh or uh, what we call Amazigh or Berbers so that's why Ben Ghabrit becomes a central figure because later on as you know in World War II history and in a lot of French history a lot of people talk about the, the role of the Grand Mosque of Paris in saving Jews and especially the role of Ben Ghabrit in protecting many Jews and giving them uh, fake uh, um, uh, paper that they were Muslims instead of Jews and this way they protected them from Nazis. But that's something we, we talk only about during the war. Uh, I'm, I don't talk about Ben Ghabrit and uh, Sultan Sidi Muhammad bin Yusuf later because I'm reserving that for the book that I just mentioned to you, which is that I'm working on with one of my former advisors, Daniel Schreuter, on the relationship between the Sultan Sidi Muhammad bin Yusuf and Jews during World War II. So that for a different book that I'm not going to talk about it right now. <laughs> Among the camps described in the book are the Jelfa camp, the Sidi Bel Abbas camp and the Janyam Burezk camp. Yeah. Where were they located? When and why were they created? Can you tell us about the histories and geographies of these camps during the war? Yes. So this is the Undesirables is largely a book, is mostly, I would say, a book about Vichy camps in the Sahara. So when we think about the history of camps, refugee camps, migrant camps, in the, even in this context, I already mentioned what I call North Mediterranean bond destiné. When you think about the relationship and the movement of people today on both sides of the Mediterranean, camps are always there. Camps for refugees now coming from West Africa into, in Tunis, camps in some parts of Morocco, camps in some parts of Algeria, camps in Europe. These are camps of refugees who are struggling because of the economic reason, environmental conditions. So I, I, for us, this book is about camps, but in a different time. At a time where you have a political and a World War II, a, a world crisis that, a political crisis that led to a global war, which led to the displacement of many people from within Europe, first to France, and then to North Africa. So let me first situate, situate who are the people who were interned in the camp before I talk about the camps. So at the moment, as early as the 1930s, a lot of European Jews from Germany, from Austria, from different parts of the, began to notice the rise of not only anti-Semitism, but also fascism in Germany and in other European countries. And then from there, they start going to France. So you have actually a large population of refugees settling in France as one of probably the last place where people could seek refuge in some way from these rising fascism. Then you have, as you know, the 1930s, you have also another conflict, regional conflict happening in Spain, this, the Spanish Civil War, that was also leading to another um, crisis, refugee crisis, where a lot of Spanish Republicans and Spanish um, refugees would end up, especially after the the, 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 the the victory of Franco, would end up in refugee camps in 
mostly in Leverne and Gurs, which were mostly, first of all, they were established as refugee camps. So in North Africa, you don't have, you. we have to wait till the Polish invasion uh, the, the by the Nazis to start seeing another flow of migrants from France, from Europe to North Africa, seeking to take or planning to take um, um, either uh, to 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 head to Europe to to the Americas via Casablanca or Lisbon. Some of them were successful. Many were successful. Others were not. And the ones who were not successful were taken to camps across North Africa, from Morocco, Tunisia, and Algeria, and mostly Morocco and Algeria, in three examples, three types of camps. What we call labor camps, and I'll talk about them, labor camps, detention camps, and refugee camps. So you mentioned three of the camps that they talked about. The first, I'm going to talk only about two here, Jelfa and Jinin Burezg. These are mostly in Algeria. But there is also another camp that I reference in the book. Um, it's called Azmur or Sid Al-Ayyashi. Okay? Sid the Sid Al-Ayyashi is what we call a, a camp de triage. It's a, camp, it's a detention camp where once, you, once people are picked up from cities like Casablanca or the port of Casablanca, they get taken to Sid Al-Ayyashi and the people who can work in labor camps, they get sent to camps all labor camps all across North Africa, including Jelfa or Sidi Sidi Buarfa, uh, so, sorry, Buarfa and other camps. So and these are the labor camps that are set up along what we call railroad systems. So let me explain what why it's why these camps were set up along railroad systems. In the 19th century, the French government, the French colonial government in Algeria, and as they were thinking before even the colonial uh, colonization of Tunisia and Morocco, the French power were thinking about establishing a railroad system across the Sahara from the Mediterranean Sea to Sub-Saharan Africa to link the, the Saharan interior to the Mediterranean via a system of railroad systems to maximize the use of mines and the extraction of natural resources. But this project was put on pause for a long time until the 1939-1940, largely because of two things. First of all, there was a disagreement about what to, whether they should put roads or railroad system uh, or dirt road or railroad system, whether they should go with cars and buses and trucks or they should go with railroad systems. And the second thing, which is the most important thing, was their lack of labor. So yeah, by 1939, you have all these Spanish Republicans who were prisoners, who were refugees and later on turned into prisoners, and Jews and other undesirables. They became the perfect thing that the French were looking for, a free labor. And those that's what become central to these camps, to these labor camps. So that's why out of 67 camps, the majority of these camps were all labor camps. In At least in talk about Morocco. And uh, so overall, probably around 100 camps or a few more between Algeria and Morocco, most of them 
were set up along these railroad systems or project or future project of railroad system. In in the in the in the post in the post independence uh, period, many of these camps were refurbished and later on were used as detention camps for prisoners, uh, nationalist independence movement. Yeah. How have the physical premises of such sites been preserved since World War II? Can any sites be visited today? What condition are they in? Can you comment on the state of conservation with respect to camps in North Africa? No, there is no there is no project of conservation, although some of the camps and traces of these camps are still there. You can still see traces of the railroad system or what's left of the railroad system in the Sahara still there. You can still see some buildings of some camps like Tendrara camp still there. If you go to places like Casablanca or Rabat or Algier or Oran or Constantine or Tendrara and many other places, you probably have to rely on oral history and oral memory to identify the location of those of those camps. Like for instance, I'll give you an example. In just outside of Rabat, um, uh, there is a, a there is a, a camp um, that's you you would you uh, which is now very close to a a um, a site just uh, around the uh, Burgreg the river of Burgreg. If you don't know, if you uh, people who lived during the period of the 1940s would remember that, but uh, nobody would know that anymore. So. So and that's I, I think that's part of the thing that we're trying to do through this historical project is really identify these spaces where Vichy and French colonial authorities and the French uh, um, uh, Ministry of uh, um, Economic Production and the uh, French Ministry of uh, uh, Colonial and, and these colonial administrations, all these projects that they were doing that were tied to to uh, colonial industries, including mining industries. So, the, so these projects, in a sense, are part of this historical, not only historical remembering, but also a, a new way to identify these spaces, write about them through different through different uh, models, through comics or through uh, histories or tr traditional histories. And so on and so forth. Yeah, and and the camp that the camp that I was I'm talking about as far as Rabat is Wadakrosh, called Wadakrosh. So that so Wadakrosh is a very small camp that was connected to uh, to the outside of Rabat uh, was part of the railroad system too, but it's it 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 held most most of the ref most of the workers there were. Uh, uh, Polish Jews and uh, French uh, French communist um, and um, Spanish Republicans. Yeah. Who is the character Yusu? Can you describe him? In what ways is he typical or atypical of the experiences of French West Africans in French North African camps? So, so one of the things we we think we're bringing to the history of comic this comic book in North Africa is to make sure and we try to to do this through the story of Yusu 
to make sure that we're giving visibility to the stories of West Africans. West African soldiers, what we what what's known as the Senegalese tirailleurs, were part of French colonial history, going back to World War One. The French the the Senegalese tirailleurs played a major role in the defeat of Germany during World War One as soldiers that were at the forefront of the of the war, and they also played a major role in freeing Europe from the Nazi yoke and from fascism. And I don't think they get a visibility in comics and in many in many writings of the war. So we try to do that in the region we're talking about, mostly because there were also camps in West Africa. There were camps in Senegal, there were camps in Niger, there were camps in, in Mali. These were camps mostly reserved for sailors, but these camps were planned to connect the other part of the Mer Niger project, the Mediterranean Mer Niger railroad system that connects the Mediterranean to Sub-Saharan Africa. So Yusso is an example that we, this is the only case we found where you have the, a descendant of a Senegalese tirailleur who fought during World War I, who did not, who decide at some point in World War II to resist the treatment of the French colonial administration. And by doing that, he became an undesirable. And then he was interned in camps. He had to uh, work in some of these camps. So it's an unusual story in the sense that you don't see a lot of Senegalese tirailleurs in the camps as workers, but you see them as guards of the camps, as part of the French. But also we want to flip this story to say that Senegalese tirailleurs and West African in general was were also part of the people who did who, who were who, who who were persecuted and in some way who who struggled during this colonial period. Um, and we have examples of a lot of some of these Senegalese tirailleurs were interned in in Germ in Nazi camps in France and in Germany too. Okay, we have an example, Leopold Sida Sangor. Sangor was one of them, one of the most, the most important, one of the most important historical figures in and uh, uh, the former president of Senegal was one of these people who was interned in a camp in 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 France before he before he survived the World War II. Also, we have a lot of Senegalese terrorists who were killed by Nazis in Lyon, who were uh, assassinated and massacred by the Nazis. So. For us, it's an important story to tell and to unsilence through the visuals by bringing the story of the West Africans as part of this comic history. Yusu alludes to Vichy camps in French West Africa, such as Kindia, Sibikotan, yeah. Timbuktu, Kulikoru, Kankan, and Konakri. How much is known about the history of these camps? Can you contextualize what he's alluding to in reference to such camps? That's a lot. So we don't know a lot. So this is where I think this is a project for West African scholars in Senegal, in Mali, in other parts of West Africa to write about, given the fact that they would know more about these local histories. And this is where you have, hopefully we can still salvage what's, what's left as far as oral memory and oral history. But, uh, but as I said, they were part of this they were part of this big project to connect North Af the Mediterranean to Sub-Saharan Africa and Sub-Saharan Africa to West Africa. 
but the number and the people who were interned in these camps, as I mentioned in uh, in my previous answer, is that most of them were sailors, were people who were caught as they were trying to go from, for instance, Casablanca to across the Atlantic, and some of them will end up in the ports of uh, along the coast of Senegal, or and then they were held, they were taken from there to Sebukutan or 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 the or Timbuktu. And that's 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 basically the story. So but we don't know a lot. And that so by mentioning them, we're signaling that these are stories that are untold, that are unresearched. And even though we have some Senegalese, we have a Senegalese um historian, forgot his name, but a few Senegalese historians actually were doing some preliminary work and interesting work on that by connecting not only by writing not only about the story of these camps and Jews of West Africa, but also by connecting the treatment and how black, how West Africans figure in the German and French colonial history in relation to how African-Americans and West Africans and Africans in general figure in the, the German discourse about race and otherness in in the context of Nazi Germany, so 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 that's this is this is a point that we are trying to allude to, and hopefully more research will be done by local scholars and also by other scholars across Europe and the Americas. Yusu refers to the nineteen forty Chasselet massacre by the Nazis. Can you contextualize the relationship between? this massacre of Senegalese and French West Africans by the Nazis in the context of the Holocaust and the Holocaust in North Africa? So to put that simply is that, so one of the things that in World War II, during World, sorry, during World War I, as I said, West African Senegalese tirailleurs played a major role in the defeat of Germany. So if you look at post 19 post-World War One, a lot of the writings about race is led by many German anthropologists in the 1920s, <clears throat> tried actually to categorize all these notions of race across building on different works that were that was done about um Africa itself. So in if you fast forward when the German took over France, one of the things that they that was done actually this massacre was part of a this held belief that strongly held belief among the Nazis that that blamed West Africans for their for the defeat of Germany during World War One, and that's that's one of the things that explains this massacre. But the people who were not massacred, the people who escaped the massacre, were taken and put in camps. So and that and I think. Uh, not only within Germany, but also within France, some of its many of it survived. So, so that's th 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 that's basically the point we're trying to to make in this in this in this uh, in this um, panel by making sure that Yusu highlight not only his stand against Vichy government and how the Vichy used the Senegalese terrorists. And France in general used Senegalese terrorists in many of its wars in the 
in the European sense, in the, in the, in Europe, but also in 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 Africa, but also making also a statement about racial policies and racial discourse by Germans towards West Africans and towards African in general. Can you tell us about the character Mohand? What happens to him in the story, and why is it significant? So, Mohand is, in many ways, just like Yusuf, another undesirable. Is another undesirable in the sense that this is somebody who joins the nationalist movement in Algeria against the, the or at least the beginning of a nationalist movement in Algeria against the, the French after years of promises that are unfulfilled, promises that where the indigenous Algerians natives were not given citizenship, especially Muslims, where indigenous Mohandas and Amazigh Muslim where indigenous lands were taken from them. And by taking the lands, they didn't have enough to maintain their household economies. So they had to move to cities and to work in in, in um, uh, projects, uh, colonial, new colonial projects, new colonial economies as laborers. So there is this, this basically disruption of an indigenous economy an indigenous way of life, Mohand was part of that. That took for years, for years, especially especially because the the settlers, European French settlers and other European settlers, stood against any project that tried to include these indigenous Muslims in. So Mohand is an example of many nationalists, Algerians, Moroccans, Tunisians, who rose against the continuation of a French model of government that marginalized the North Africans. And in that, in that, in that sense, in that sense, we thought that Mohand is an important part of this story. He has to be included just like Yusuf has to be included, because he tells the story of the independence nationalist, independence nationalist who were also interned in the camps for different reasons. Can you tell us about Rabbi Alush? What role does he play in the story? So as so, the, so the, these are layers. What we what we see here is different layers of stories that are told by Hans. Hans is is a, in a sense linking all these complexities of individuals and stories. But they're all tied together. So Rabbi Alush is a representative, is a voice of the indigenous Jew, North African indigenous Jew. So as you know, there is a, as European Jews are coming, flowing to North Africa, you have also another member, another Jewish community all across North Africa, North African Jews. In Morocco, you have about 240,000 Jews that have a different uh, legal category. They were, they were, uh, so they were subject of the sultan. In in Algeria, you have about around 140,000 Jews that were uh, that were French citizen, French citizen, but they lost their citizenship uh, because of the anti-Jewish laws. Uh, this is a French citizenship that was granted to them uh, because of the Crimea decree that goes back to 1870. And then once once Vichy took over, you have that the the cancellation of that citizenship. You have also other Jews in Tunisia that were subject also uh, of the of the ruler of Tunisia because 
in Tunisia, you have Tunisia and Morocco were protectorate, were French protectorate, and unlike France, which was a department that was linked to uh, France, was part of Greater France. So, Alouche is one example in the south where you have these what we call Saharan Jews that uh, one of my my colleagues Sarah Stein wrote about them, who you can see that they are living. Separately, they are not in the camps, but they are a reminder of the fact that there is another Jewish community that has in some way until now escaped the internment, escaped the the, the camps because of their legal status, because they are not French Jews, but they were also connected because they lived not far from the camps because these camps were set up along uh, many communities or they went through many communities. So, and in some way, uh, uh, Hans and uh, Mohand and uh, other internees could go from, could, could leave their camp at the end of the day and go to the village for either to uh, walk around or to go to meet friends or to go to a cafe or something like that. So that's so Alush is a reminder of that of just a of a, and the other Jewish community that's even though it's many of its members <coughs> was going through French was were was a in a, some in some way or another depending on the location was being influenced by or affected in my words I would say affected by the anti-Jewish laws French anti-Jewish laws that were uh, written in the metropole and then that the, that the Vichy government tried to apply all across the colonies, but each community were subjected to these to these laws in a different way. So that's what we're trying to do in this story. This question is hypothetical and counterfactual in nature. Can you speculate on what happens or happened to the various characters in this story after your book ends? What do you conjecture may have happened to them after you stop narrating? If you cannot answer this question, what kinds <laughs> of questions would you like your readers to ruminate upon regarding the characters after they finish reading your graphic novel and after they reach the end? That's not a hypothetical question. I think it's a real question. It's a real question in the sense that descendants of many of these people are reaching out to me today almost every month, every week sending photos, asking questions about where to find the stories of their fathers, their grandfathers, their mothers, or telling me the stories of themselves as kids who went through some of these detention camps. And for me, and for Najib and, and I, it's a, it's a, I think we're already, we already achieved what we hope this book will, will bring, is that it's a, this is a project of memory, memorialization too. It's a project that not only meant for the classroom and for the general readers to think about what's how people, the people who survived, where are they are now? Some of them are in New York, some of them are in in Haifa, some of them are in Paris, some of them are in um, in uh, Bolivia, uh, some of them are in uh, Japan. Uh, it's it's really it's it's some of them are just here in in California. For us, it's really it's a, it's a beautiful. Thing about to to do as far and to be reminded of the power of memory 
and to help people in some way or another think about their own stories. And, and in that sense, this project, this visual project that tries to link the text to the image is something that I think is as important as a memorial that is put in a site of a camp today. It's probably even more important because it it allows people to read about it, to see it, to think about the possibilities beyond the image and to think about what those images and those faces in each panel communicate as far as sentiments and feelings and how people felt being held in a camp under the sun, under the sun of working on a daily basis, lifting rocks or putting together or um, breaking rocks or um, making sure that um, um, a railroad system is put in a in a, in an amount of time that for a, a year or two, and uh, so it's that's that's what we hoped. We hope that second generation or descendants of these people will be able to visit the archives through the book we just published, and I think many of them are doing that right now, and we are very happy about that. In in your perspective, when we think about silences surrounding the events in North Africa during World War II and the Holocaust. Should we think of silence in the singular or silences in the plural? If we think about silence in European collective memory, in Arab historiography, in North African collective memory, in Jewish studies, in the West, in Israeli culture, are these separate and distinct silences or is it one general silence in the singular? I think these are silences in the plural. And that's why we make sure that the undesirable includes a lot of voices and 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 not to say that, yes, this is the, the fascist Nazi project was a project that targeted Jews mostly. But in this project, a lot of people over time were added to that. And a lot of people were affected directly or indirectly by it. And it became a project that would include other people as Vichy would imitate that project, that Nazi project. So the undesirables, in a sense, include these. And our project is a, tries to end silence the other, many, many other stories, including for, for me, and I can end with this one. For me, it's also a family story. Uh, in one of the camps that we don't talk about in the book, Camp Bouazer, in this camp, in as early, before even the Vichy um, rule in North Africa, members of my own tribe, members of my, including my father, worked in these camps as laborers. It was a, it was a, it was a mine, a cobalt mine in southern Morocco that the French colonial administra administration started using as early as the 1930s. And then later on, it will be taken by the Vichy government because of the importance of cobalt in the, in the, in the, military, in the military industry. So you can see here, and, and through that, I'm, I can see also the story of my father there. I can see the story of many indigenous women Amazigh and Arabs and Jews in, in all of these stories. So that's, in, in a sense, the unsilencing of, is not only one, it's many, many of many voices. And we hope that 
when we put together all these male figures that characters that represent each group, we're also trying to encourage the readers to think about this as a collective of different voices. <laughs> In what ways was the preparation of this book therapeutic for you? I, I don't, I, I probably, I think. If any, if, if any. I don't, uh, yeah, there is no, I think it's an academic project. It's an academic project built on a, on many, many years of research on probably over 10 years of research that started with writing uh, encyclopedic entries for the United States Holocaust Encyclopedia of Camps and Ghettos to organizing conferences, to writing edited volumes with my colleagues here at UCLA and beyond. And then that ended up with this book. And this is one way to reach out a different audience, mostly, hopefully kids, hopefully K through 12, and the general audience. As we bring our dialogue today to a close, can you tell us about where your time and attention have gone since completing this book? This is a book that allowed me, in many ways, to see the power of image in today's communication. Uh, this is a book that, uh, as we speak now, I'm actually, uh, I just got the, the edits of the French translation that's going to be published in Morocco next month. I'm waiting for the Arabic translation soon. So, so in 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 um, it, this is a book that really in it opened my mind now and my um it's now not only forcing me but it's pushing me to think about the possibility of the comic in rendering our research to a much larger audience and that's where I'm hopefully planning to go in the future not not in all of my research but at least in some part of my research, I want to, every now and then, I want to think about the project that takes what we do, all the research, all the writing we've done, and then think about, think think that or use that and translate that into a visual format, a comic format. Because I really think that's a way to bridge K through 12, to, to bridge the universities and to connect universities and what we do as professors at and researchers in universities to with by working with K through 12 by working with the larger communities it's it's i think it's really in 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 that way i think we're we become public servants and we fulfill the our role as public servants i couldn't agree more i i wholeheartedly appreciate all the effort that you have invested into this noble and righteous work Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. To our listeners, I am your host today on the New Books and Jewish Studies podcast, Ari Barbalat. Today, I've been in dialogue with Omar Boom. He is professor of anthropology, history, and Near Eastern languages and cultures at UCLA, University of California at Los Angeles. He is also the Maurice Amato Chair in Sephardic Studies at UCLA. Today, we have been discussing his new book, Undesirables, a Holocaust Journey to North Africa, published in Stanford by Stanford University Press, 2023. His illustrator, Najib Berber, recently passed away, and this interview is in part dedicated to him and his memory. Thank you.